Well, very good morning to uh, to everybody. If you would please go ahead and be grabbing your Bibles or, or devices, whatever you're using, be turning to Second Corinthians chapter six. Second Corinthians chapter six. As you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge as well. It's good to see everyone out this morning, and, and here we are on another Lord's Day, just blessed with the opportunity to join together and and uh, praising our Lord, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and praying together. It's always such an encouragement to to be here with folks of of like faith, like precious faith, uh, to open God's Word and study it. It's uh, it's an encouragement to me as well. And uh, to you who are, who are visiting, you just simply came at the wrong time. Uh, Josh is, is the normal preacher I'm filling in, so we did warn you in the announcements. You had time to leave. You didn't leave, so you're stuck with me. Uh, but in all seriousness, we are here to, to look at God's Word. And, and my ambition this morning is really uh, to, to further... My personal skills, yes, in, in proclaiming the truth. But in doing so, I need your help. I need your help if I've if I've said anything wrong to to let me know and, and point that out. So we are strictly in accordance with the Word of God, speaking as as the oracles of God. So let's move on this morning. You should be opened up to Second Corinthians chapter six. We're going to be looking at verses fourteen through fifteen. Do not be unequally yoked. With unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? I was curious as to how many of, of particularly the, the young kids, the younger kids here, might know what a, a yoke even is. And we don't exactly see a, a lot of them in use nowadays, unless you're near a community that doesn't use electricity or, or motorized equipment. So, I reached out to a couple of friends here at Lakeside and I asked them to, to challenge their kids uh, with drawing what they thought a yoke was. I said, don't don't spell it to them, just say the word and see what they draw. And uh, and this is uh, some of the feedback I got right here. And it was to be expected. You know, we got we got quite a bit of detail on one of those. I think we got a scrambled egg going on. And and that's just what happens when we hear the word yoke. That's that's often what comes to our mind. Y O L K yoke, the yolk of an egg. And and of course, when we're reading in this verse right here, we know the the word yoke, Y O K E, uh, is a, is a little bit different of a concept. So I said, all right, after you've had them draw the first one, have them draw a second one after you've explained it a little bit better. And I, I picked the the best one I thought. Uh, and this was a really good drawing, and, and of course we got peace and love going on here too. So I appreciate I appreciate that very much, and uh, I appreciate the youngster that that uh, gave that to us. This is correct. This is the kind of of yoke that we are going to be talking about, and I like that they used uh, the two people because that will that will help us in understanding what we're talking about uh, this morning. So we are. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few things this morning with these verses, and since not all youngsters may have been in on this, I wanted to also establish a grounds uh, so you understood exactly what we were talking about. So as you look at the screen here, we see two ox wearing what we refer to as a yoke, this Y-O-K-E. And notice how this yoke it has, it has two loop-like areas. And of course, that's where the heads of the animals would be uh, placed through. Those are fastened to a wooden beam, and it could have been a metal beam if, if that's the case. But in this picture, we're seeing a wood beam. So we see that this wood beam, it connects these two animals together. And part of the definition of yoke actually means joined together. 
And as we use that word this morning, that's exactly the connotation, the relationship we should draw in our minds, that, that whatever is yoked is joined together. Now, I want to go even further in describing this yoke because I truly want us all to, to not only understand what the yoke it's, itself is, but its, its purpose. So think, if you will, that, that these two oxen in this picture were separated. And separate those in your mind. If we place a harness on, on just one ox and had him pull the plow alone, what would happen? Well, he could, he could pull that plow pretty good. Oxes are very strong. But now, at the same time, if you take this, this other ox and you've joined them together just like this picture has, suddenly you have the, the combined power of these two ox. You now have twice the plowing or, or pulling power. The weight, the weight is distributed and each oxen carries a part of the load. They have made the load lighter for each other. So one purpose of this yoke is to help combine the power of these two animals so they can accomplish more together. It also keeps them guided. If you think if you're gonna, if an ox is gonna move one way or another, it's gonna move that other ox one way or another. So they've gotta, they've gotta work together here. They gotta be guided together and carry that load together. Otherwise, the plowing, in this case, it, it would not be productive. Now, I want to put a little twist on this scenario. We have, we've been talking about these two oxen for a little bit now, but why do you think that, that we used two oxen here? What do we notice about their physical qualities? Kids, you can probably do this very well. You ever seen those uh, books that say, pick out the differences? There's not a whole lot of differences in those ox, they look very similar, don't they? They're similar size, they're similar build, similar height. They're going to have a similar uh, muscle or working capacity. So, I want you to, to take that in your mind, and as we look at this next picture, see what the difference is. Uh-oh, we've got a totally different setup here. Well, now we have an ox that is yoked, that is joined with, with a donkey. That donkey's not even doing anything, he's just sitting down. And I like the playfulness of this of this image because it gives a little light to what needs to be understood. These two animals, they're, they're very different, aren't they? Physically, they have very little in common. That Probably the most is they have ears, eyes, and four feet. But the donkeys is probably not as, as strong, it's probably not as wide, probably not as tall. So this picture gives a little fun to the idea that these two, they just... They're just not going to get along in that yoke together. They're not going to accomplish too much. There's been an error in joining them together, yoking them together, because they can't be effective together. The ox will go his pace and will pull his way. The the donkey will will pull his pace and pull his way. Most likely in this case, that that plow is going to to lean or sag or or get crooked. And and if you're plowing a field and that's the way you're doing it, it's not going to look right. It's not going to come out the way you need it to, to come out. So it just doesn't make sense that we have that we have joined this ox and this donkey together. So that's going to help you. I want you to build that base in your mind. Let this image help you build that base in your mind as we as we go a little bit further here. And we're going to be talking about uh, our yokes. So we should have an understanding of this of this physical yoke, this this beam. And we can start to relating to what the passage is talking about in reference to the yoke. Only now we need to think about it from a spiritual sense. As human beings, we, we don't walk around physically yoked with a beam to anybody. So, so why would we be physically wearing a, a yoke or beam in that manner with an unbeliever? What are you talking about here, Paul? Well, that's not what we're getting at. What we're talking about is something of a spiritual sense. 
And I'm going to be working this passage out and hopefully work through the various statements and, and what we're going to call rhetorical statements or questions in a way that we can wrap back up with talking about our own yokes. And I'd like to attempt to work this in a little bit different way. I'm going to work from verse 15 up. So let's talk for just a moment about the phrase, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And I think this question becomes a very serious thought. As followers of Christ or, or pursuers of godly things, I am being partaker in the things God wants me to partake in and to be joined with, to be yoked with. And when I am among those of the world, which oftentimes can be our, our neighbors and our friends in the community or, or at school or at work, I'm taking some part in, their, in, their, in some actions of their lives. I'm taking some part in that. The exception is, however, the thing we need to, to separate is, is in what way am I taking part in their lives? You know, physically speaking, we cannot completely avoid people of the world and fully do our expected duties as Christians. God still wants us to reach out to those who have not heard the word. And even when Paul was speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he was talking about not being partakers of those who are sexually immoral. But notice, if you turn there, his statement, particularly in verse 10, he says, "...not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world." He knew he, was, he, knew he needed to make it understood that it would be uh, impossible to live in this world and not be among those who practice evil things. He, of course, clarifies that he was speaking of someone that would bear the name of a brother uh, in the verses following, but the application for us is that we know we will be among those unbelievers in the world. And some of these may even be our friends uh, that, that we have in this world. Spiritually speaking, though, if this friend wants nothing to do with our godly goals, we need to make sure this friend or, or these friends are not hindering us from doing the godly things. And I've said this before, and I don't care to say it again. You know, losing a friend is, is never an easy thing, but sometimes it might be the right thing to do for us if we're seeking godly things. If we are being influenced by them rather than us being the influence, we need to remove ourselves from that companionship. That's why 1 Corinthians 15.33 is there. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals or ruins good morals. That's what can happen as we are in, in, in a yoke with these worldly people. If we're not careful, we could be influenced by them rather than us being the influence to them. Notice as well, uh, in James chapter 4 and 4, and you don't have to turn there, I'll read these two for you, but if you're taking notes, these are great. Being friends with the world, it can be a dangerous ground for the Christian. And, and James writes, do you, know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And also in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Banking off of these passages that we just read, it is certainly possible for us to be influenced by the world. Otherwise, we would not be warned. In the full scheme of the matter, as believing or striving children of God, we cannot spiritually advance ourselves if we take portion with the unbelievers. 
We cannot be joined with or part of the frivolity of sin day by day if we want to please God. There is no good in that relationship there. There is nothing that should be yoked there. Now back to our original context from the beginning. Let's explore another one of Paul's rhetorical questions here. What accord has Christ with Belial? All right, Paul, who are you talking about? Or what are you talking about? What is, what is this Belial? For general purposes, I'm, I'm going to attempt to break this down as well so that our, our complete audience understands who or what we're talking about here. The name given here, Belial, actually comes as well from, from the Old Testament. It's not the first time we have heard it referenced. It's just not one of those names or words that we refer to much. In the Old Testament, particularly for you King James users, you're starting to remember this, uh, we can see it written a couple times. Uh, once, uh, of course, in Judges 19.22, he talks about the sons of Belial. The English standard, if you're reading from that, it, I think it says worthless men. Sons of Belial, worthless men. And, in, and again, in 1 Samuel 2.12, talking about the sons of Eli, it says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So what I'm getting at here is, is to help you understand some of the studies and some of the scholars that have looked into this, this name that's given here, it, has, it does have a general definition. And the use of the word Belial here in the First Corinthians passage, I think may be only one of the only times it's used, uh, but it's in the New Testament, but it's referring to wickedness, and more specifically, Satan. The name Belial here, if you read at the bottom, from the Greek, I'm going to get this wrong, sorry if I pronounce this wrong, Belier comes from the Hebrew term Belial, meaning worthless, good for nothing. And it's, it's generally understood as an appellative of Satan or as the personification of all that is bad or that was bad. So a very summarized, more direct way of putting this may be to say, what yoke or what partnership has Christ with Satan? You know, when we say it like that, it becomes very simple to answer, doesn't it? Of course, Christ shares no partnership with Satan. What Christ did in coming to this earth is the very demise of Satan's deeds with mankind. Paul is giving another obvious statement here to make sure it's clear that no relationship or good that would that could be coming of these two being compared. I don't have a very good application uh, by example here, but I will tell you uh, that that back in high school. I was part of a program, I think it was called FBLA or something, Future Business Leaders of America. And from time to time, they would get us out into the community and they would let us meet uh, business leaders or, or go to certain facilities that we might not normally go to to kind of see how things are, are run in the community. And on one of the field trips, we got to go to this prison. Now, growing up, I never encountered very many people that were just foul-mouthed and rotten-deeded criminals. I just I just wasn't associated with that. So I learned very quickly as I was walking down this hall in this prison just how it felt to be among those people. It's not, it's not a good feeling. It's actually pretty scary. And I'm telling you, there's no amount of bars that made me feel safe from being there. Uh, but to me, at that time, looking back, that, that would be the best relationship I could say of men of Belial, men of worthlessness. Now, I'm not saying that as human beings they can't turn their hearts around to God in the future, but at that time, by whatever deed or, or whatever they did to get there, it would have been something of Belial, of worthlessness, something that 
just was not good. So I knew it. For, for me at that time, that was my good telltale that that wasn't the place for me. Glad I never have gone back. Uh, but anyway, so just as much there is so much as Christ would not be associated with these things or with Satan. Continuing with Paul's thoughts here, though, let's now move on to one step just above that phrase where he says, What fellowship has light with darkness? You know, all throughout the Bible, we see a spiritual battle of light versus darkness. And as we read and understand the scriptures, we draw a conclusion that we are talking about the fight against evil. The devil's deeds and attempts and that evil in the world relates to darkness. And the godly, the faithful, and spiritually minded were represented as lights. God is referenced to as being light. His word is referenced to as being light. And we are referenced to as being lights in our service to God. And back in the Old Testament, if you're taking notes, uh, I'm going to be reading through these fairly quick, so don't overwork your hands here. But we can see a few passages that help us elaborate on this. In Psalms 119 and verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In Proverbs 4, 18 through 19, it says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 5, For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And then love 1 John uh, 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so again and again, and much more than these, we see reference to those seeking after God and godly things. They are said to be the light or in the light. And do you know what true darkness is? I'm going to ask a question. You don't have to raise your hand, but has anyone here ever been in a cave when they've turned out the lights? If if you have, it's an experience. And and what I'm getting at is several years ago, we went to Mammoth Cave, and, and on one part in this trip, uh, the guide was talking about darkness, and and they turned off the lights. And I'm I, I'm telling you, we weren't very far, but I'll tell you, I, I couldn't tell you where the entrance to that cave was. I had no clue. So we we're deep inside the earth here, and if you've ever experienced this, it's already pretty cold. It's kind of chilly, and and secondly, it's it's already kind of dark. So when they turned out the lights, I, I thought I knew what it meant to be in the dark until that point. It's like the temperature itself just drops twenty degrees. I I can't explain it, but you you put your hand in front of your face, you you don't even know how far your hand is, and you're like just bringing it closer and closer, thinking when am I? Oh, there it is. It's it's just a scary thing being in that pitch black darkness. And I'll tell you something else. If no one's making a noise, you don't want to scoot your feet either. Because wherever you slide, you don't you might fall off the face of the earth. You just don't know. It's a very dark place to be. And this darkness is just what we're getting at, spiritually speaking, of what sin, what it is to be in sin. When there is no light, I'm talking void of all light, pitch black, whatever phrase you want to use can't touch this, 
but it is dark. So, yeah, it's a scary thing. And this immense amount of motion you experience when you, when you lose all visibility. You can't trust your eyes because you can't see anything at all. <clears throat> and if you're alone in that, it's, it's, it's going to be even scarier. Now, to say that, and we look at being in this darkness or thinking about being physically in this darkness, I want you to picture that same image and put yourself there if you were there spiritually. If you are in such sin that you just can't find your way out of it, you are going to be looking for something to guide you, anything. And God is, God is that guide, or we, as servants as His, are the light in this world of darkness to help guide the others. And when you're without God, you're, you're kind of, in a sense, you're in that cave of sin. You're alone. You don't have that light. But if we twist this just a little bit and we think uh, about it in a different way, if we have been in darkness and so we're, maybe some of you hunters are really going to be able to understand this. If you're in darkness and all of a sudden you finally see that, that speck of light or that sun coming up over the horizon, if you've ever gotten turned around in the woods, that is the most glorifying moment in your hunting experience when you're like, I know where I'm at. It can be a little scary when you lose your way. So just as so as much as that is when we are the light, or if God's word is the light, when, when we are in darkness and we see that light, or we have that example, or we see where we need to go, everything's become so much more comforting. It's a sigh of relief, isn't it? We see that light, we now are guided, we now know where to go. This is what the Word of God is. It is a light to our feet, a light to our way. He is the light. We trust what we see in that, we trust that our path is more secure, and we trust that as long as we have that light, we know and be uh, we'll be safer in our passage. We sing from time to time, ye are the light of the world. And when we talk about the world, we are often, as usual, we're talking about the sin in the world. And where there is sin, there is darkness. Because God's desires for mankind is being blotted out. The light becomes less and less, and that is why we are dependent on we who are seeking first the kingdom of God, we are the lights in the world of darkness. Matthew 5 and verse 14 through 16. A common passage to remember specifically for this. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we are going to live as servants of God and abide by God's word, we should not be ashamed of that at all. We don't want to cover up this light. If we're in that darkness and we have a flashlight, are you going to put your hand over the end of it? Absolutely not. You, you want that light to show you where you're going. You need that light. Just as much there... We are the light of the world. The world needs to see us. We want to be seen. If you think about a house on a hill, if it's, a, if it's in the valley and you're looking across there, you're not going to see it, are you? You might see a, a hint of a glow. But if it's on top of that hill, you're, it's going to shine, it's going to brighten up everything. You're going to see that. And that's exactly what we want to be for God. We want to be this light. We don't want to be covered up. We want to be seen in that sense of, of glorifying Him, of leading others to Him, and being His servants. 
So as a light, we do not fellowship or join together or yoke ourselves with darkness. As Christians and as servants and as servants of God the Father and Jesus the Son, we don't fellowship with sin or join together with those who would bring us down. Therefore, what fellowship does light have with darkness? It all leads to a simple answer. None. It's like the young it's like the, the yoking of the donkey and the ox. It serves no purpose. Now Paul preceded this uh, with what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Now, of course, by now we have established a clear foundation of, of these rhetorical questions. We should realize that Paul is basically saying the same thing in different ways. And his point is well taken all throughout the verse and the context. When we think of righteousness, the most basic definition we can give it is either a person or conduct that is morally right. Simply put, doing the right thing. And in the immediate reading here, it would be obvious for a law-abiding citizen alone to understand what Paul is talking about. If someone reacts or acts righteously, then they would not, then, then what they would ever do would be considered, would not be considered lawlessness. In a spiritual connotation, we should always tie in this, this phrase, lawlessness, directly to God's law. What the Bible tells us is as right and wrong. If I'm a righteous person, a righteous man, or a righteous woman, I'm going to abide by God's law. My righteousness is that I I treat my fellow man with good moral respect, both physically and spiritually, that I abide by the guidelines given by God in, in conduct, action, and reaction, and those guidelines being the law that, that God has provided. Therefore, if I'm in abidance with this law, then what connection would that have with lawlessness? In general, the spiritual connotation for lawlessness is that associated with sin. Because anything we do contradictory to, or in addition to, God's law would be considered something man-made, and not God-made. And so, we would not be righteous in our actions. We would be self-absorbed sons of Belial, if you will, doing only what we see is, is right and not what God commands. In Paul's letter to Titus, he's going over some qualifications of elders and and warnings to be watchful for empty talkers and deceivers in context. But notice what he says in Titus uh, 1, verses 15 through 16. It says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. When not abiding in God's word by action and deed, we become disobedient. Lawbreakers, a lawless people who are also noted as detestable, unfit for any good work. If you look just a chapter over in Titus chapter 2, and this time uh, starting in verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all, for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What lawlessness are we redeemed from. He's referring to the sin that, that we have or have had in our lives. 
He redeemed us from this lawlessness. So an understanding of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians, we break down to the basics of not acknowledging that in order to be righteous, we must put away or, or break away the yokes of or, or to lawlessness. There's just no harmony that would join those two things. So we've explored through some, some basic Bible principles using these verses and opened up hopefully a better understanding in the comparison of what or who we are yoked to. He says, do not be yoked with unbelievers. You know, not, not only is Paul talking about a future tense, he's also talking about an, an immediate tense. Now, do not be joined now or ever with the unbelievers. Just as the donkey and the ox, or as in the Old Testament it would be worded, the clean with the unclean, it would have been an abomination, a detestable thing, something repulsive to consider. That is exactly the spiritual connotation we should draw to who we are yoked with today. Even in marriage, we are yoked together. We are joined together as husbands and wives, and we should be equally yoked in our love for each other, and even more so, our love for Christ Jesus. There's one last passage I would like to to read for you all today, and I urge you to follow along because we are going to see everything we have talked about tied together with a great exhortation. I want you to be turning to uh, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to be reading uh, quite a few verses here. One, 1 through 17 is what we're going to be reading. But pay, pay very close attention here. It's a great reading to, to tie this up. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That ties into the sons of Belial. Therefore do not become partners with them. Don't be yoked with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to who? To the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes what? It becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, Now look carefully, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the the days are evil. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen. What a great reading that ties in everything we've talked about in one fell swoop. And and to, to send it off with that last phrase, understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you believe that the will of the Lord is that you are yoked together with unbelievers? Because that's exactly what Paul was preaching against. 
He doesn't want us to be yoked with unbelievers. A few uh, Wednesday nights ago, I told Ashley I'd give her props. So I am. Uh, she brought up an excellent point. She talked about strength in numbers. Well, that's exactly what we have when we joined those oxen together with that yoke. You have strength in, in numbers. They are helping each other. Guys, that's exactly what we are here to do together today. Each and every time we meet together, each and every time we spend time together outside of here, people like precious faith, like precious, uh, precious thoughts, we are striving for the same goal. These are the people, these are the brothers and sisters in Christ that we should be yoked to. The ones that we are pulling that plow with, so to speak. We want to be an encouragement and an aid and equal in our pull toward Jesus Christ. Don't be unequally yoked. Break that yoke to sin. And Paul says to do that right now. That's the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord is to be obedient to the Lord. It's as simple as that. If you're not a child of God today, you do have an opportunity. If you have not obeyed His Word in baptism, that is our invitation and, and to God be the glory for the, for the message that we have to be able to, to talk with, to be able to look to, to be able to be guided by. But we need to think about our state of mind right now and where we are at and who we are yoked to. If you need to break that yoke of sin this morning, you have an opportunity to obey God's Word, to come forward and be baptized, to wash away those sins, to bear a new yoke. Christ's yoke, which by the way, is light. The burden is light. His yoke is easy. We want you, uh, we love you and we want you to be obedient to that extent. And Maybe you've already obeyed the Word of God in baptism, but perhaps you have let that yoke start to slip. Perhaps you have let that plow start to sag and you realize that you are yoked with the wrong things now than you were before. Once again, let us pray with you. Let us pray for you. And do that all now as we stand and as we sing.